Escape from Midtown. Make a break for the wall or tunnel under. Elementary geometric forms run amuck. Architects lay psyche in steel and concrete. Birth of firstborn. Bye bye to mistress. Alimony checks. It's all there, encoded in columns. The features of facades. Windows that will not open. Walk in the shadow of subconscious. Toil in the monuments to bitter decline. The skyline grafts the hubris of generations, visible for miles, and inevitably all who see it extract the wrong morals from those stories. Common buildings end too soon. Recognize royalty by height on sight, and memorize their crowns over time. Some of these buildings arrived by tugboat, towed in from the South Pacific Islands, where they were carved from black volcanic rock. These dark glaciers, so much beneath surfaces, in buildings comprised of other buildings, discarded thirteenth floors, sinister transactions unfold. Office space available. Few buildings around here deserve to be people, but judging by the grim procession of faces, some of these folks are halfway to sheetrock, steel-boned, mortar-blooded, granite without end. Colson Whitehead is the author of the novels The Intuitionist and John Henry Days. His unique, surreal, and often humorous approach to writing informs his work. His latest book is a collection of essays on the Colossus of New York. Welcome to the show, Colson. Uh, thanks for having me. Your books seem to be centered around the city of New York. Let's talk about New York for a minute. In The Intuitionist, you carefully conceal the identity of New York. It's masked. It's anonymous. Why? I think I was trying to get at um, the essential nature of cities, and so while, this, while the you know the, the the city in the book does read as New York, I wanted to um, just make this sort of unnamed uh, place that you could you know project your various ideas of the city upon. So um, and at the, at the same time, I was reaching back to uh, film noir conventions and the detective story conventions, and so um, there's a lot of Sort of you know foggy streets and um, and uh, shadowy doorways, and I think it, it sort of adds to um, the, I guess you know the uh, sort of anonymous nature of the city, where each person can create is creating those kind of details on their own um, to to you know to form this metropolis. So it's unnamed, and I think for good reason. Could you tell us a little bit, our listeners, a little bit about the story that you tell in the Intuitionist? Well, The Intuitionist, um, as unlikely as it may be, is about uh, two warring groups of elevator inspectors. Uh, the the old hands, the empiricists, do it the right way, checking for wear and tear and the sort of things you'd want elevator inspectors to look for. And the new insurgent wing of um, of the Elevator Inspectors Guild is made up, the, of, made up of the intuitionists who can just step into an elevator in question and divine what's wrong with the machine. So it's an election year, and each uh, side is trying to get their candidate to win. And into that sort of intrigue, I throw um, Lila Mae Watson, who's the first black woman to become an elevator inspector. And an elevator crashes on her watch, and she's sort of drawn into various intrigues. Um, and, and has to solve, solve this you know, um, sort of fake detective, fake, fake detective story of who, uh, what caused the crash in the machine. Could you tell us a little bit about why you chose a sort of detective novel format to tell this story? Well, I, I tried um, uh, to write a novel a couple years before that, and it was pretty terrible. No one liked it. And really, I just want to learn about plot. Um, and, you know, there's nothing, there, 
the conventions and stock characters of the detective novel um, seem like a good jumping off point to learn about plot. You know, they're very, you know, um, the things you expect in a detective novel, reversals, uh, forward progression, there's a, a search quest. And uh, it seemed like, you know, I could use these conventions uh, to teach me about plot and suspense and moving uh, a linear narrative forward and at, at the same time provide a... Um, a kind of scaffolding for various kind of jokes and uh, um, a, a parody of detective stories at the same time. You really enjoy humor, and your books are very funny. How did you bring humor into the story of warring elevator inspectors? Well, you know, the, 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 you know, the idea is so absurd that immediately it's uh, you know humorous, and the idea I mean, and the problem in making that, that kind of story real is that. Um, uh, it, it, I, 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 I guess what you have to do is present this absurd idea in a realistic way to keep people interested, or else it's just a farce, and the various other things I'm talking about, um, race and politics, uh, are not going to be taken seriously. So um, the humor becomes very deadpan, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of winking a lot of the time when I'm talking about elevator slang and the debased treatment of the escalator inspector in the elevator guild and the various sort of um, absurd little rituals that, that, that they go through. And, the, and um, I guess the, the, the point is to make this ridiculous idea um, a little more real by making these kind of jokes. And also, I, I just have a sort of cockeyed view of the world, and that always creeps in. So. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book was the way you created a literature and a world it was almost, in many ways, a, a science fictional novel because of the way you talked about the technology and the way you created this world of the elevator inspectors within which to launch your themes of race and politics. Yeah, well, I mean, I was, I, I was consciously trying to use the tools of science fiction. Um, Samuel Delaney has this great essay about um, how, how language works differently in a science fiction tale. And if in the first paragraph you come across a sentence that goes, the door dilates... Well, what does that mean? You know, we have to figure out that in this world, the science fiction world, doors dilate, you know, and open and close that way. And so you, you teach the reader how to read the book as, as, as they're going along. You teach them the rules of the world. So um, when I, you know, I realized I, ha I was sort of in trouble uh, by having an elevator inspector solve a criminal case, I had to make up um, a set of skills for the elevator inspector and that meant making a school. And if there's a school, then there's probably two. There's probably academic infighting, and that gave birth to the empiricists and the intuitionists. And if there's a workplace, then there's office politics, and that sort of fed into the kind of Republican Democratic uh, wings that are fighting in the, in, the, in the elevator guild. And so, in, in in trying to make this ridiculous idea real that elevator inspectors are important and our heroes in the city, I was forced to create slang and culture and a, a, way, of, a way of speaking, a way of dressing, and you know, the, the complete codes of their behavior. You're, once you've created this world, you do quite a bit of really interesting ways of working in talking about race and politics in, within this world because your main character, Lila May, is the first black and female inspector in the world of these elevator inspectors. Yeah, well, I guess... The more you think about something, at least with me anyway, the more sort of meanings and weird shadings uh, develop. So just the word elevate, you know, has so many different meanings. You know, the phrase uplift the race, 
uplift the race kind of suggests itself as a possible theme. And then um, there's little literal elevation um, going up floors in a building. There's spiritual elevation. Uh, then the elevator becomes something that elevates, becomes a way of, of you know, reaching transcendence. So as the book you know, progressed, these different uh, meanings you know, su- suggested themselves and became fruitful avenues to talk about these d- different things, whether it was uh, social uplift, racial uplift, um, spirituality. Could you tell us why you chose um, the world of elevator inspectors to talk about race? Well, you know, it's totally, you, know, you see, you see you know, I can't help laughing because it is ridiculous. And so, the, so the, the problem, again, is how do you make this? How do you say that with a straight face? And um, really, I, I was just trying to do a, a parody of a detective novel and use these detective novel characters of the, the henchmen, the mob boss, the crooked politician uh, to teach myself about, about plot. And um, I was watching a, uh, a, a news show, 2020, and they had a a little piece on the hidden dangers of escalators. And I guess over time, uh, the tread can sort of depart from the side of the of, of the track. And um, little people, you know, children, people with little feet can get their, you know, toes ripped off. And, they inter- and then they interviewed an escalator inspector, and I thought, wow, that's such a weird job. You don't think about it, but I guess somebody has to inspect the escalators. And um, from there, uh, from growing up in a city, I've, the elevator inspector has always been this anonymous hero, um, he, he he comes in when you go to work or school, and he signs signs his name on the inspection certificate. But you don't know, don't know anything about him. Uh, one year he's using black ink. One year he's using blue. Like why is that? And um, then they have and they have certain beats so that you can go to your friend's apartment, and the same guy has been there. And so um, I thought it'd be funny just to have an elevator inspector become an inspector. And I went to the library to see what sort of skills um, an elevator inspector would bring to a criminal case. And, of course, there were none because they're, they're just <laughs> elevator inspectors. And that's where I decided to make the whole thing about elevator ins- elevators and elevator intrigue and um, started creating that kind, of, that, that kind of cultural lore of elevators. Lila May is a very interesting female character. She's strong and headstrong, but she's also very quiet and seems to exist within herself. Yeah, she's a, she's a very uh, internal character, repressed in many different ways, which I think is why um, when I was thinking of my next book, What to Do, I really wanted to have like a lot of different characters and a lot of different voices um, because uh, it is kind of grueling to stay with that sort of character for a, a long time um, um, since... You know, the book isn't particularly upbeat. You're also just hanging out with a very depressed person who you keep uh, putting obstacles in front of. And so um, I always feel like when I go from book to book, uh, the one I'm doing now is an antidote to the one before. So um, it was nice in John Henry days to um, have a much broader canvas and a, you know, a, a, much, a, a, a nice multitude of voices instead of um, sort of Lila Mays. <laughs> Let's talk about John Henry days because that's just a fascinating idea. I love the idea. I think I read where you mentioned the idea of John Henry in a search engine when you first started looking for him. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I had always been always really liked the story, and um, uh, I, I kind of knew, you know, from college on that one day I'd have to write about him in some way. And uh, I was working at a computer company in uh, San Francisco. Uh, they were 
trying to make a, a rival portal to, to Yahoo, and they're basically hiring people off the boat. I, I moved here and had a job like in a week. Um, and uh, there was a lot of downtime. You know, it was kind of <laughs> definitely overstaffed, and I really had a lot of time to kill. So I put John Henry into a search engine, and um, the first thing that came up was, uh, I think, Kasparov's Battle with Big Blue, the chess computer. I'm not sure if that's the right chess player, but um, uh, it was a, you know, the first time a, a chess master had been beaten by a computer. And so the, the, you know, the comparison they made was to John Henry beating the steam drill. And, um, and that sort of got me going on this idea of updating this industrial age anxiety tale, John Henry beating the steam drill for the information age, um, and to sort of talk about our um, our wrestling with technology now and how it's different or the same as um, back in the 1870s when John Henry supposedly was working. You really had a chance to indulge your um, interest in speaking in other voices in this novel. You... Uh, Created, it's almost a, like literary pointillism in some ways. There's so many little uh, asides and different characters who come in. Could you talk about how and why you did that? Well, I mean, I I, uh, I was very concerned with plot and the intuitionist. And for me, uh, John Henry Days has a thematic plot, and that's the development of this idea of John Henry, so that he means different things to different people, uh, different times, uh, different cultures, so that he's... Uh, there's one John Henry for railroad, railroad workers in the 1880s. There's another for a blues singer in the 1930s who's singing the song. Um, he's something else for um, Paul Robeson, who who starred in the short-lived John Henry the Musical in the 1940s. Um, you know, for you know, for socialists in the 40s and 50s, he was a real working-class hero. Um, there's no sort of question of whether his battle with the steam drill was. Um, out of excessive pride or what uh, was a failure. Um, there's no ambiguity. You know, for them, he was striking a blow against the man and for all, for all people who are sort of ground up by the machine. And it means something different for me, you know, uh, someone growing up in the end of the 20th century um, who obviously um, wasn't working on a chain gang <laughs> like, like Sean Henry. <laughs> Um, and has you know has you know has, I I have my own sort of battles, and so each different character who um, who, I, who I bring in has a different point of view um, of John Henry, and I think it adds up to a kind of cubist portrait of him. You know, you see him from a lot of different angles, and over time, instead of having a, a straightforward plot that goes A to B, to, you know, B to C, um, it sort of moves along um, by these different conceptions of John Henry. And that, and that's a kind of, I guess, what I call a thematic plot. Your your plot then is your presentation of the evolving vision of John Henry from his original inception to now in the information age. Yeah, it's kind of an argument I'm making over time over um, about what he means and and what he continues to mean because he his meaning he's very elusive. I think his meaning keeps you know shifting. Now, this book also had a much more autobiographical trend, didn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, the, the main character is a hack journalist and um, who is called to Talcott, West Virginia, to write about the John Henry Days Festival. And, um, you know, for, me, um, for many years, I was, I was a critic at the Village Voice in New York. And when the web boom started, um, it seemed like, you know, you could not get a job writing something for the web, whether it was um, 
uh, you know, film reviews, movie reviews. Everyone's trying to get these databases up and running, and they needed money. And instead of um, writing, it was called content. You know, and so immediately your sort of vocation has you know, has become debased in this kind of new language of new media. And when I came out here, I'd uh, I'd finished the Intuitionist and was you know trying to pay off debts that I'd incurred by writing it because. Um, uh, well, I was wasn't working that much because <laughs> I was trying to write, and um, I you know got this job at this computer company. Who I don't know. Did I mention the name already? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't wanna... Yeah, <laughs> you haven't that. mentioned the name. And uh, and um, uh, I, it was my job to write these 40 word blurbs for weekly web chats. Um, so if you you were going to pets.com, I I, I would write you know. Cuckoo for your cockatoo, you know, crazy for your chihuahua. Come to pets.com every week at uh, eight o'clock for a pet chat. And I just felt, you know, after writing, uh, after being a working journalist and finishing, you know, a novel, that uh, I'd been sort of, um, I was being sort of beaten down by the man. So I think that definitely fed into some of the more um, uh, satirical parts about the information age in the book. One of the things that's difficult to do is for a writer to write about writing without a masturbatory feel. How did you achieve that? Because it, it's just as funny. Oh, well, because, I mean, um, the, the, you know, the characters, these, I call them the junketeers or these hack journalists who get flown everywhere um, by movie studios and uh, sort of airline magazines and, and cover whatever um, item. Uh, you know, they're, they're hard to write. Um, there's, you know, they, they are so debased and they really are, um, this kind of cranky, cynical bunch of characters that, um, writing becomes, you know, a very, um, a not very glamorous profession. It, it's sort of, I mean, it becomes digging ditches the, the way they're doing it. And they become, um, sort of ironic counterpoints to the pick and shovel men of the railroads instead of, you know, um, hacking out bits of rock, uh, to drive a tunnel through a mountain, they're hacking out column inches to feed, you know, um, the media machine. So it's very unglamorous and not, and um, it doesn't come off very well in the book. You like to write about humanity trapped within machinery. I, I tend to uh, personify inanimate objects a lot. I'm not really sure why. And a lot of that goes on in Colossus. Um, buildings have attitudes and streets have personalities. And... Um, at least in the new book, you know, um, I am trying to break down the barriers between us and the city. I think there's a way that we look after the city and the city looks after us. And um, and that means that it has, you know, some human qualities and, you know, has a certain, um, it can be a, a punitive parent. It can be a, a, um, a loving confidant. Um, so I think uh, I just find, I just it comes to me very naturally, so you know, I think definitely with this book, I went with it. And in terms of talking about technology, I've just always been very interested in it. You know, I read a lot of science fiction and comic books as a kid, so um, uh, with John Henry and I think the intuitionist also, from watching all these cautionary tales about nuclear war and machines running amok in the 70s, that was like the golden age of, you know, of the computer uh, that, that becomes sentient and takes over the world and everybody dies. Well, there's a f- very famous science fiction novel from the 70s that is the only other novel that I can remember with the word Colossus in its title, which is Colossus, the Forbin Project. Yeah, I haven't read it, uh, <laughs> but I saw the movie at a very young age. Yes. And um, actually, I, I bought a uh, a poster of it on, on eBay a couple, a couple months ago because it's uh, the, the word Colossus have always, has always uh, had a certain power for me because I, I, 
um, as a kid, I, I, when I was seeing that movie, I didn't, had no idea what a colossus was. Um, I just, I just know it's sort of powerful and, and you know, it's out to get you. Um, the, the title of the book, uh, The Colossus of New York, comes from a, a 1950 science science fiction movie. It's a really bad movie about a um, a Nobel Prize winning scientist who was in a car accident, and then his scientist father implants his brain into a robot called the Colossus, and the various hijinks ensue. Um, and he goes around, uh, you know, haunting New York. And um, I had a book of science fiction and horror stories, and I had a picture of the Colossus in it. And um, so I didn't know what the Colossus, the Colossus of New York was, but uh, and it was kind of it was definitely bigger than you and uh, could knock you around. And so that's sort of what happened to a lot of the people in, in, the, in the book uh, and seemed to be a good title. The, the new book is a fascinating book because as you read it, you're, you're going to find it typically in the nonfiction section. But as you read it, it doesn't read like nonfiction, but it, you know it is. You really water down that barrier between fiction and nonfiction. I find it really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, you know, to know what to call it. It's, it's not fiction because I feel like there's a lot of observational research that goes into it. Um, it's not strictly nonfiction because there's a lot of speculation and made-up stuff that, that's in it. And it just seemed like the essay, just the word essay, um, you know, from the French to try to make an attempt seemed to be what I was doing. I'm trying to get at something. And it might not fall into t- traditional categories, but... What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, uh, you know, when the first thing my publisher said when they got the book was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, what's, what, what, what do you put on the ISBN number? Uh, does it go into the belles lettres section or, you know, or <laughs> memoir, essay? Uh, it's hard to pin down. One of the things that I, I struck me when reading it was that it wouldn't be too hard to have turned this book into a book of poetry. If you just hit a line break and after every sentence, bang, you've got a book of, of poetry. Right. Uh, you know, the fiction writer in me, you know, gets really upset when people say, say it's very poetic. You know, I'm a fiction nationalist. But, you know, um, a lot of it, it does jump from idea to idea. And sometimes I'm following a linear thought. Sometimes I'm moving forward um, because it, it rhymes, because I'm making an obscure pun. Uh, some of the senses are very imagistic. Some of them are, you know, are crammed with gritty detail. And so, uh, you know, I, I am, I think, using some of the techniques of poetry um, in this book. Um, I think it's always funny the response I get because fiction writers say, ah, that's not nonfiction because you're having too much fun and you're putting too much fictional elements into it. And nonfiction people think that uh, it's not uh, nonfiction because it has too much fiction in it. And then the poets are just glad to have anybody like you know hang out with them, so they want to claim it as their own as a prose poem. Now you say you're a fiction nationalist. Why? Oh, I, I just identify. You know, I I still see myself as a, mostly a novelist and a fiction writer. So, um, but really, you know, no matter what form you're working in, it's just a, you're just using different tools to get at, to get at something, some sort of truth. Sorry, in a poem or a um. Uh, uh, in journalism, you're just you're using words to get at you know uh, the world, and so I, I don't I don't see the distinctions between fiction and nonfiction as being that important. Could you talk a bit about your work as a media critic, TV? It's it sounds like it'd be quite fun. And I'm no, I... yeah, it was a real blast. I mean, um, I grew up in Manhattan and read The Village Voice, and always thought it was really cool to be one of those guys who uh, 
talks about hip hop one day and then like Derrida the next, <laughs> you know, you wear these different hats. And when I started working at The Voice, that was very popular. Um, that sort of using the the tools of high culture to talk about low culture. So I started working in the book section. It was my job to open um, all the books that came to the office every day, and that was about we'd get like forty books a day in, and uh, we only reviewed forty books a month. So it was a real sort of harsh introduction to the the real world of of uh, book reviewing and sort of the, the plight of the author. But um, you know, one it's it's a, it's it's called a writer's paper, so um, which means which is can be good and bad. Uh, you can have a lot more free reign. But um, you can be self-indulgent at times. So um, I learned, you know, what to, what to, what to, what to do and what not to do in terms of, of writing. If you write a good article, people, you know, say, "Hey, Cole, you know, great article. You know, it's really funny." If you write a bad article, it's like a total dud, and no one says anything. So you know, you've screwed up, and maybe you're, you went a little over the top, and maybe you shouldn't have "I" in every sentence, <laughs> and maybe talk about the, the thing itself. It's one of the things that's fun is TV is really fun to make fun of, and you spent some time uh, writing about TV. Tell us about that and about that world. Well, yeah, I was a TV critic for two years, and it was great uh, just to have that kind of forum, you know, that that column. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of good TV, so you just end up panning everything, um, which you know gets to be tedious, and which is why I finally quit. But it was a way you, you can talk about everything's on TV, so you can talk about every, everything. I had a really fun article where I just talked about the weather because I just talked about weathermen and then I started talking about the weather for like, you know, three paragraphs. And it was just kind of a fun kind of riff on Al Roker. I mean, uh, I um, I visited all the corporate headquarters of ABC, NBC, and CBS and talked about how their architecture reflected their prime time fortunes. And so like the, you know, the kind of crammed architecture of the ABC um schedule reflected their sort of haphazard idea of like what sitcoms to put on. And so it became like more of a humor column um, towards the end where I just sort of like uh, indulged my weird ideas about the city and, and pop culture. Um, but, I, but I didn't have to quit because, you know, for every Sopranos, there's uh, 30 sitcoms about mi- mismatched roommates. And it gets, you can't make the same joke over and over again. It's just sort of, you know, just for your own sanity, you have to move on. Could you talk a little bit about your interest in genre fiction? Um, From Stephen King to science fiction to Jonathan Latham. Well, as, 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 as a child, that's what I read. You know, as my first sort of exposure to literature. And um, I remember reading Carrie, like, in seventh grade and, think, and thinking, like, you can just stay home and write about, like, bloody massacres in high school and get paid? That's, like, a good job. And most of my friends who... Uh, who right now were comic book geeks. And so you either wanted to write the X-Men or like, draw the X-Men. And that was where your first sort of creative impulses, you know, were, were fed. Um, I don't, uh, I guess, get it wise, detective fiction or science fiction. I, I don't read that much anymore. Um, uh, who do you read? Who do I read? I read a lot of non of nonfiction. That's where I get a lot of ideas from. Um, so when I'm down, I'll, you know, um, when I have some downtime and storing up energy, I'll, I'll pick up some weird microhistory of, like, the pencil or something, or something <laughs> and that ends up being uh, an idea later on. Uh, I had a fun time this spring teaching at the University of Houston, and I decided to, to teach a contemporary fiction class. So I, I really caught up on all the people I hadn't read um, in the last couple of years. So I read uh, The Interpreter of Maladies 
and um, you know boned up on Sherman Alexie, all these sort of contemporary fiction writers who I hadn't gotten around to, and it was really great to know that and see that there are people who are, are doing you know great stuff and who are sort of working at um, some of the same problems you are from different angles. One of the things that interests me is the aspects of fantasy in your work. Not fantasy as in elves and dwarves, but fantasy as in the imagination and the projection of the imagination upon the world and how that controls how we see. Well, I think I'm, I just, I'm a very strange guy. And I think, I think uh, when I look at a subway car, um, I see this, you know, very strange kind of dance of humanity. And I think I, um, since I have the luxury of working at home and, uh, and having a lot of free time, I can indulge that, I think, in my writing. What, what was really liberating about these essays is that um, I could be a lot more surreal than I you know, could be in uh, my fiction because there were no rules. I mean, in, um, uh, in The Intuitionist, I have to make a case for these elevator inspectors as real people, and I have to explain how this absurd uh, occupation works. Whereas in the essays, um, I can have these sort of great non sequiturs uh, that are you know I find really amusing, and um, add a little sort of touch of the bizarre to to the story of you know these different New York places, um, and so you know so the book was just really fun to sort of fun in that it allowed me to indulge my sort of sense of uh, the bizarre. As you were creating the Colossus of New York, did you move around and actually live in the different parts of the city? I you know, I, I mean I. I've, I've moved around enough. I think I've moved about 12 times uh, in, my, in my lifetime in, in New, York, New York City. So so that, you know, the Broadway chapter is informed from living uh, up in Harlem and having that kind of Broadway and then living downtown and having a kind of hip downtown Broadway. Um, uh, some of the chapters, I, d- I didn't do any, you know, so-called research. You know, I, I like the, the Port Authority chapter um, takes off from the idea of how people get into the city, but it's really about how people arrive in their new hometowns, whether it's San Francisco or Chicago. You're generally coming, um, arriving, you know, kind of broke, perhaps on a greyhound. And uh, it's about what we expect of our new home and the kind of dreams we're heaping upon it, which are immediately dashed when we get out of the train station or subway station and have no idea like where to go. Um, Other chapters, like the Central Park chapter, you know, I ended up doing some personal archaeology and going back to the places I went to as a kid, uh, you know, that park or this park, and, you know, um, trying to figure out what they meant to be then, what they mean to me now. Um, I live in Brooklyn, so I don't get up to Central Park that often. So it was a real um, journey to be reminded of what it means to me, um, even though I take it for granted in the same way that um, I took the Twin Towers for granted. You know, you kind of assume they'd always be there. And now that you, you kind of see that no matter how big it is, it might disappear one day. Um, you have to kind of renegotiate uh, how you feel about these things. So a lot of that was going on as I was walking around taking notes. It was, I was impressed that there was no post-9-11 commentary in the book at all. No, I think, you know, I think when we think about New York, that's, that's you know, those, it's in the background, so there's no reason to go into it. I mean, I think there are... There's a sentence here and a sentence there that maybe alludes to calamity or uh, evanescence, um, and definitely 
you know, I, I wrote some of the essays before 9-11 and the bulk of them afterwards, and there's, there is a kind of uh, uh, sort of deep sadness that informs some of the later essays um, here and there. But, um, you know, it's, 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 that was an event two years ago, and I think um, uh, it's enough that it's, it's, it, the shadow of it is already so much over the book that to even, like, mention it is going over the top. I was really impressed with the language in this book. It's mind-bogglingly beautiful. It's funny. It's just a joy to read. Could you tell us about how you crafted this? Was this something that you just sat down, wrote out longhand, that was it, turned it in? Or was it infinitely revised? Um, pretty inf- infinitely revised. And actually, I think three more clauses I want to put you know, put in these d- different chapters. Maybe for a paperback, I'll put them in there. Um I got the idea for the form from a chapter in John Henry days. Um, it's called the, I call it the Country Fair chapter, and it was my attempt to link the the fair in John Henry days in Talcott, West Virginia, to all fairs. There's a certain there are very there are certain universal um, events common to uh, fairs or you know parades. The texture of cotton candy, uh, sort of watching a balloon swim up into the air, like. Uh, um, the sort of tentative steps you take <clears throat> uh, as you take as you step off the tilt whirl. So I was trying to you know get all these universal feelings into and cram them into one brief chapter about fairs. And it, I felt and the voice in that in that chapter pans out, zooms in, hops from person to person, um, captures uh, a moment of, of of joy, and then switches to the next person who's standing next to that person. Um, who's having a bad day. And it seemed that that kind of, that voice is very fruitful, and I kept thinking about it. And um, once I was done with John Henry, I started writing these brief essays. I uh, started with the Port Authority chapter. I wrote the Rain chapter. And um, it just seemed like a really kind of great new form. Um, I would, when I started working on it uh, wholeheartedly, I would just write down, if I had an idea about the subway, I'd, I'd write it down and maybe put it in the computer file, and for a year and a half, there'd be like one line in the computer file, in, 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 in the subway chapter file. And then I get a rush of inspiration and, and in a week, you know, finish it, revise it. Some things I, you know, I might have an idea for the Times Square chapter. I might assemble it line by line for two years. Uh, some weeks I wrote nothing. Some months I wrote nothing. So it really was just assembling these different impressions and sensations and speculations over time. And... And then tweaking them and trying to find the rhythm of, you know, each sentence and paragraph, um, until you know, for me, they're a clockwork. Uh, I, I, it was very frustrating when I knew it was a chapter was ninety nine percent done, but there was like a word out of place, but you don't know what word it is, and then suddenly you realize, oh, maybe this sentence goes at the end of this paragraph, and you're like, okay, I'm done. You know, it was a real, uh, there's a real way that it was very jigsaw and had to be, um, I think sort of perfectly fit together. Could you talk about trying to sell this book? It seems like having written two highly acclaimed novels, walking up to your agent saying, I'm doing a book of essays, is not going to put a smile on their face. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, you know, I wrote four of the essays before 9-11, and I sent them to my agent, and she's like, good. You know, <laughs> um, how's the novel going? You know, she, she's very supportive, but you know, obviously, it is you know a, a tougher sell. Um, and and for, and for me as an artist, I, 
I knew I was a novelist and I knew I could write a novel. You know, you might not like my fiction, but at least they fit the description and, you know, they seem to do okay. Um, so I made Colossus a side project and worked on, you know, wrote half of a novel and uh, that was very good. But after 9-11, um, it really seemed that uh, I, should be, I should be working on this book. I was writing essays for the New York Times about the city in the aftermath and they're really hard to write and really painful and personal in a way I hadn't really allowed myself to be before. So it seemed I should go full speed ahead. And I think the the nature of the city, the culture and feeling of the city had changed so much from, you know, the publisher of Random House to the guy in the streets. I, you know, the, um, we all want, sort of wanted... Um, some sort of expression of how we live in a city and what it means to us. And so um, once I showed the publisher uh, the four essays, it was a tough pitch before they saw them, but then once they saw them, it, it made sense. And they were, you know, they've been supportive, you know, through the whole thing. Oh, well, I can understand why, because having read it myself, it's so full of joy. And you mentioned this word a lot, rhythm. Talk about the musical influences of your writing. Are there any? Um... Or the film influences, because at one point you were talking about cameras zooming around. Yeah, well, well I, I mean, I think um, uh, that those Passos narrative voice of the camera eye was really um, important to me when I was in, when I was in college, and in it, uh, you know, he, it's in his USA trilogy and a, a bit in Manhattan Transfer, but he'll take a a character, real or fictional, and just bounce around in their head, um, sort of zooming from idea to idea, and it's. You know, it's it's kind of hard to follow. You, you sort of get into the rhythm, eventually, um, and and when I first encountered that, when I was you know discovering what I liked about fiction, um, it just had a really big influence on me. So I I was using. For me, it's kind of reined in a bit more than Dos Passos does, and I'm trying to give the reader something more to hold on to. But um, you know, it moves from idea. It's a pun. I mean, I, the sounds are just really, really important in, in this book. And I think um, I was trying to kind of, kind of capture the welter of a, of a street corner or a subway car. There are, you know, 20 people on, on a street corner. They're all thinking different thoughts. They're all in different places. Some have had good days. Some have, have, have had bad days. And trying to, you know, capture that... Um, that calamity that exists on a street corner or in an elevator or in a, in a, a city bus, um, I think just produce this. Um, it is, I mean, I guess it is kind of musical, kind of music, uh, sort of music, musical voice and um, cadence. You don't address some of the things that you address in your first two books, particularly in your new book. Matters of race and, and politics seem to be left behind in the impressions of the city? I think, you know, um, there are no, like, real names. There are no first names. There's no uh, references to race except on a beach, and that's about how some people are tanning faster than other people. Because I, I think those are more, I think, superficial qualities to, you know, um, to people, I think, in terms of what I was trying to get at. If I'm trying to talk about how we actually live and how we actually feel about things... Um, whether it's mundane, uh, how do we get a seat on a subway car, or a little more profound, uh, how can I live this life in the city? 
I think um, if you're talking about skin color, that is sort of like it's not actually that important and didn't really occur to me when I was writing the book. Um, I guess I get, I get asked about it now because because uh, it has been a, a really fruitful topic for me in the past and will be in the future, but didn't seem appropriate to, to getting this to sort of getting beneath the skin of the city in this book. Could you tell us about your new novel? I would if I if I didn't think it would jinx me. Um, you know, I, I put it, I put it down for two years to work on Colossus, and that's the longest I've ever put something down. So I'm quickly running out of procrastination devices. I mean, I'm on I'm out here talking about Colossus, and that's a way of not working. So in a couple of weeks, I'll have to get back to work, and um, hopefully, it, it, I'm sure it'll go well because I'm, I'm you know, I like the book, but. Uh, being a little superstitious. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about superstitions. I share those superstitions myself. I'm loath to mention anything that I'm doing until it's actually done. Right. I mean, um, I'm not I'm not one of these writers who has to have like you know their pencils and sharpened at a certain length and uh, have a uh, a certain kind of desk and write um, with a certain kind of pad. Uh, when I put all my notebooks in a pile from the last ten years, they're all. Some are pocket size, some are you know legal pads, and they all are filled with this kind of crabbed writing. Um, I think the only, uh, in terms of jinxes, I guess uh, the older I get and the more I produce, I sort of wonder, you know, uh, was that my last good idea? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm really proud of this book. I'm like, can I write another good book? I mean, I don't know. I think that, that book was kind of good. <laughs> I'm really proud of it. So um, I think I am getting a little more superstitious and wary of jinxes um, just because... Um, I feel. Uh, I guess I. I sort of. I, I like what I've done, and I, I want to. Um, I hope. I hope it can continue. I don't end up, end up turning out like the intuition is to the return of Lila May, you know, and start <laughs> running out of ideas. Well, it's also part of the the writing process itself is to keep that energy bottled up. Yeah, I mean, between between books, I definitely, you know, veg hard and break out the TiVo and uh, and. Uh, Think, and try to think about as little as, as little as possible, and just sort of get back in touch with my friends who I wasn't talking or weren't talking to because I was working so hard. So, but but that time is very you know it's, it's very important. It's where you sort of germinate ideas, germinate, and you kind of gather your energies for the next project. We've been speaking with Colson Whitehead. His latest book is a collection of essays called "The Colossus of New York." Thank you, Colson. Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun.